Well, Rob, should we should we introduce ourselves and then get down to biz? Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Opposable Thumbs podcast. Opposable Thumbs is a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative challenge every two weeks and talk about our accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Precision is our challenge this episode. Thanks to Quinn Dunkey for that challenge. And Matthew Lippincott is our guest this episode. Greetings, Matthew. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yo. Yes. We are very excited. Uh, my name is Rob Ray. I use the he, his gender pronoun, and I'm a designer and run the exoskeleton art space here in Los Angeles. And I'm Taylor Hokinson, and I'm a uh, artist, an educator, a DIY evangelist, a CAD CAM uh, engineer, noted tall person. I'm a he, his kind of guy. Hi, um, I'm Matthew Lippincott. I use uh, he, his pronouns. I'm a designer and a kite and balloon maker. I currently run my own small company, Head Full of Air, and I just released a new kite balloon called Air Pup. Ooh. I'm also a volunteer on the uh, Futel payphone network as an operator, so you know you can you can call me. So F- Futel, could you describe what it is? I know I want to hear more. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. Futel uh, Futel is a project started by my friend Carl Anderson. He's he's really the force behind it, and uh, the goal was well, all these payphones are getting ripped out, and uh, they still exist. So we put them back in. Um, in front of people's houses or businesses and uh, if people donate internet we use voice over ip to provide free calling anywhere in the continental united states or canada uh, as well as like uh, phone art and uh, uh, you know inconsistent operator services like we we answer whenever we feel like it (laughs) oh just that just that term inconsistent operator is so fantastic so so how do you spell futel so that we can link to it f-u (laughs) <laughs> T-E-L <laughs> That's it's uh, a Futel.net Futel.net, yeah uh, 503-468-1337 468-1337 Excellent hmm. I heard the description, but I'm, I'm, if you could maybe uh, un- still, unravel some of the details processing. Yeah, so, yeah there, there, there are several payphones around town that are out on the street and uh, they're 24-7 accessible and uh, let's see, there's right now there's like a, we, have, we have voicemail. You can set up a, a pin in the Futel system and have someone call and give you voicemail on that pin. Um, you can just call and talk on the phone for a really long time. You can dial <laughs> zero and, and ask me a question, which you know, could <laughs> range all the way from should I have another child to, uh, you know, what's the local number for a hospital or something. So is it like a little free library? Kind of, like, do you have a phone out in front of your house, or how do the phones exist? He's using existing payphones, right? No, well, they were existing payphones. Then they got deinstalled. We had them. We got them somehow. And then... Uh, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> put the, you know, uh, we'll like pour a concrete slab and actually reinstall them on the street and wow. uh, normally trench power and internet out to the phone from someone's house, which is donated by you know, phenomenal people who are willing to donate a little bit of internet and power. And then are you, and then are you just relying on the fact that the city's not going to yank it out or is it permitted and everything? Uh, they're, they've all been installed, uh, on the private, pro- what classifies as private property here. Right, um, right, right. Now in Portland, that's, that includes your, uh, strip between the sidewalk and the road and uh like right up to the road in some some right. areas so yeah the, none of them have been on 
on public property, but they're they are publicly accessible. They're in public spaces. Do do you get many random people trying it, or do they seem to be aware of the project when they give it a shot? Sometimes they're aware. I mean, we have frequent frequent users, um, yeah. but because people need payphones, people need telephony services. Mm-hmm. But then also a lot of the time it's like, oh, I didn't realize it was going to work. I didn't think it would work. Right, right. And then I get a lot of someone dials zero and they're like, um, you know, can I make them a collect call? And I'll be like, you can call for free. And then they're like, really? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, yeah. how do I do that? And it's like, hang up and, and dial. And they're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of that. Yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah, I remember having this really early piece I was working on, this interactive work when I showed it the first time in um, uh, Rogers Park in Chicago, people would say, you know, do you have to pay money to do this? And I'd say, no. And then they just get really suspicious. Like, why would you spend all this time <laughs> to make this thing available for free? It's it's like, because I wasn't hustling, they felt like, well, you got to have a hustle. So clearly you're going to, you're trying to pull one over on us and you're like, gonna, I shouldn't do it because you're weird. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just, I'm so excited about seeing Robbie, you know what it's like, particularly in technology art when someone does something and part of the reason that it works so well is it's tight and you can describe it in two sentences and then it just leaves our heads spinning like, but wait, but, but, but how is it complicated and how, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, like this thing's just like, fuck yeah. You know, like free telephone service is interesting for this raft of reasons, but you don't nec- that doesn't have to live in the description. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I'm just so excited yeah. about it. And I think that's part of the reason why you and I are a little speechless. Yeah, it's so good. It's like, so you're a volunteer operator, is that right? Right, right. And I help install phones around town sometimes. Yeah. Wow. And do you do you have a uniform? I, I actually <laughs> I do. I have a T-shirt that says Futel. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Oh my gosh. And people will see me in the T-shirt sometime. They're like, Oh my god. You're That's an organization. So cool. What? And then I'll tell them that, and then I'll tell them that the payphones work because a lot of the times they will have seen the payphones and assumed that they were oh. some sort of static art installation and had never mm-hmm. approached them. Well, I, I suppose as fascinated by this as I am, I suppose this is not Matthew's project yeah. explicitly. Yeah. So I want to make That's sure true. that we can save enough uh, bandwidth here to talk about his explicit work. But um, could you t- could you talk a little bit about AirPub? Sure. Before I do that, though, you know, we are uh, Portland's fastest growing telephone company. Telecom company. <laughs> so uh, we, we've we went from like uh, two phones last year to four this year. So 100% growth. That's huge. Um, wow. And uh, and recently moved out of state. There's one in Ypsilanti, Michigan now. So, yeah. uh, you know, if you know locations where someone would be okay having like a payphone drilled into the wall yeah. um, and people using it 24-7, then uh, you know, hey, we'd we'd love to have a, another installation somewhere. So. Wow, I would love it if one of these payphones was up at Columbia College. Uh, Rob, what do you think? JPL be interested? In the- <laughs> yes, yes, they would. <laughs> you, you can you can beep out my uh, my reference. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, wow. You're you're like you're disrupting the dead phone industry. Yeah, yeah. that's really which, good. Which which persists, and I think um, yeah, I mean, this this is something my partner Audrey works on a lot is um, doing fundraising for libraries, right? And so it, one has to remember that books still exist, but also a lot of people, the only place they access the internet's at the library, you know? 
And so just, just thinking about these things that feel so ubiquitous actually still being kind of a limited resource for people in a socioeconomic strata is yeah, a, it's, it's a yeah. great reminder, you know. Okay, so air pup. Air pup. Yeah. So air, air pup is a, a, a kite balloon. It's a small balloon that flies like a kite. And okay. um, I designed it around the FAA exempt category uh, for moored balloons. So it is not an aircraft, so you don't need to register it <laughs> and can fly it anywhere that, or most places, drones aren't allowed. Um, and uh, yeah, you use it for videography. It stays up for several days. So I uh, just actually did a post about uh, amateur radio mesh node launched with a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, a culmination of kind of 10 years of background research. I, I guess I started the project, this is in the spring of 2008, and um, I was going to go and uh, meet my girlfriend at the time's uh, parents, who, who were sheep farmers, and uh, I wanted something to do while I was there. And I was like, oh man, I've always wanted to, you know, film sheep herding from the air and i kind of thought okay as as a side project i'm going to this is much too ambitious um but i was like i'm gonna um build an observation balloon and put a camera on it and fly it it's like i have five months i'll just do it and um that obviously was much too hard the first balloon i made was destroyed in the wind in about five minutes and i realized that there was an awful lot i needed to learn about flight Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I've been flying kites and balloons now for 10 years and, and continued to research observation balloons from the beginning of the 20th century and turned that research into an actual functioning new kite balloon, which, as far as I can tell, is the first new kite balloon design in 25 years. So, I mean, th- this relates to our earlier conversation about the mail and how you were talking about your awareness of these... Um, you know, the, the difference between four ounces above or below and whatever. And I just, the fact that you introduce it with your knowledge of the FAA regulations and how this manages to skirt <laughs> something suggests, mm-hmm. it suggests to me that a lot of your projects are sort of using the rules as a creative framework as opposed to just a total bummer that's stuck on you by the man. Uh-huh. Is that accurate? I have worked on, on a number of different regulatory adjacent projects so (laughs) those those are probably related related Uh, related things uh please you you can't just let that one sit and not and not bring up some examples if you if you wouldn't mind (laughs) oh sure uh back in 2010 um, i was working um on trying to start a composting portable toilet company Mm -hmm. and it seemed like a kind of obvious idea like everybody hates portable toilets like people who use them hate them Mm -hmm. people who service them actually generally don't like them because most of the year they're losing money on them except for like festivals during the summer uh, right. and then uh, store them. yeah yeah and then all the wastewater treatment plants that accept the pump outs they also hate them because the chemicals that keep them from smelling truly horrible um all destroy bacteria so they destroy the treatment systems uh. so it seemed like it seemed like um you know composting portable toilets would be a great market um there is, in fact, a composting portable toilet uh, coalition in France called uh, Intestinal, and there are like over <laughs> oh, 60 man. companies providing this services. So it's like it's a normal uh, it's a normal uh, business in like the European francophone world. Um, 
And yeah, it turns out that it's not illegal in the United States. It's just until recently almost completely impossible because of the way the different regulatory interpretations worked. Mm. And uh, that led me down this whole rabbit hole of getting work in um, water and sanitation regulations and working on uh, um, gray water and composting toilet rules. Yeah. And actually, just this year, this April, the chapter I edited to the as a supplementary chapter to the Uniform Plumbing Code on uh, composting and urine diverting toilets was just published. So uh, that was finished three and a half years ago, but uh, committees. So then, wow. So, so this was published just in the, this is not an art project. This is, well, depending no. on how we define that, <laughs> this was just published in the real deal regulations? Uh, in like, well, regulate... Building code regulations are very strange because, like, sure. they're owned by these nonprofit organizations, and then they're referenced in the law. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, it was published in a in an ANSI standard called We Stand, which, considering that there was a whole bunch of stuff about urinals, we never stopped <laughs> laughing about. Um, but it means it's a water efficiency standard. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. R- Rob, have you ever gotten a? Uh, something that official through the uh, through the chain of command? No, no. I I do like the idea, of like a regulation punk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Taylor, I think you go first this week. Uh, yeah, there should just be a little zip folder. For y'all to check out, I gave you a multimedia extravaganza. Well, I'm looking. So I'm looking at this picture, and I see a um, hot hot air gun, like uh, for doing circuit work, for doing surface mount or something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that is that correct? I assume it's a very like kind of almost like a needle of hot air that comes out, mm-hmm. so you can um, hit a specific section of a circuit board and melt the solder on it. But I've never used one, so. Uh, rework station. I see. Yeah, that's that's the name of it. Yep. Cool. Oh, the next thing is a, a, a MOV file. Oh, in action. Here we go. Yeah, and that it, little needle of air oh. is making a mess. Wow, blowing little resistors or something off the board. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, it's like a the tiniest of hair dryers. Mm-hmm. That it seemed it seemed like it had a lot of air force. Like it really blew didn't just heat up hot like the little resistor service mount resistors kind of flew off yep yeah there was molten metal in the air yes sure. <laughs> yeah yeah and there is a, a circuit board like uh hmm huh. yeah, it looks like a home homemade circuit board something that was yeah. uh like cnc'd onto a copper copper plated uh, board and and then there's a button uh-huh. okay we got tweezers and there bunch of electronic components got some contacts and some buttons and then yep. these little square things that uh-huh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say that's a lens on top do you think is that a lens on some electronics under there oh it sure looks like it the squares with like the sort of um little um uh like glass a, looking round yeah thing like like a, like a droplet of glue or something but, but that's glass. right yeah and then there's these the um, connectors I've seen before uh, that Taylor's used those before, and I think they're called 
something like genderless or hermaphroditic. They have a, a name mm-hmm. that yeah, implies... The, the second one was right. Her- hermaphroditic, yeah, that... Mm-hmm. that um, it's the same connector on both sides. It just happens to marry up uh, by by sort of interleaving together, almost like you would um, shuffle cards. It goes like, and like, then the connection is made. Oh man, Rob, I, I bet you could do a, a really good um, machine gun sound when you were a kid. <laughs> Busted out. I could never do it. I had the rolling R's. Yeah, uh, uh, I have to like. I'd have to find some like plastic army men to really. Yeah. Rob, get down beneath <laughs> the ridge. Here they come. Yeah. Brr, brr, brr. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. There's still a little bit of role playing encouragement. I could never do that. Not once. Uh, I mean, I can get the. Uh, wait, hang on. Gotta get the mucus going. I yeah. get like the uh, the target the Eartha Kit thing I can do. Yeah. yeah. That's all I get. Matthew, do you have any good sound effects? Oh man, uh, gun sound effects. I don't know. I guess I was always more of like a laser person, so yeah. I get oh, like a nice. pow, pow, or like you know one of those sci-fi type gun noises. Yeah, the blaster. Yeah, yeah blasters. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So I don't know what this is, but it's an image of parts that have been removed. Forty-three oh four. The next image. Those are RGB LEDs. Just so I don't keep you. Oh, keep you guessing. Yeah. Cool, Matthew. What do you see in this next image? I see tape. And it's yes. on top of a circuit. Clear uh, and then it looks like a piece of like like steel or galvanized steel that's been cut out mm-hmm. or possibly nibbled based on the corners. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And there's, so there's a square wafer looking circuit board and it's, and it's taped and there's a galvanized or stainless steel backing or tin or something. And then it's taped down to a wooden desk. And so it looks like this may be some sort of holding jig using the tape because he's mm-hmm. going to populate the board with parts, maybe? I'm not sure. I'm trying to get a sense for the scale here because it, yeah. it looks like there are these like really big traces and these giant vias on the board. Well, the scotch tape will tell you, right? It's scotch tape. There you go, giving us a big clue. You see, my in my mind's eye, that was packing tape. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you really changed the scale for me right there. So the next image, aha, we see solder paste, I think is what that is. Mm-hmm. This is also a thing I've never done. Oh, so that... Solder mask, yeah. That that yeah, piece of metal mask, was right. a solder mask for applying solder to the pads on that circuit board. And I, I think of this as like sort of like a silkscreen, right? Like you have, it's like you have holes punched into a flat piece of metal and where those holes R is where the solder fills in the little part where the metal is missing. I, I will jump in, and I'm still new to this too, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, the solder mask, I think, is something that you silkscreen down onto the board and then it prevents um, the traces from being exposed copper over the whole board. So the deal with that is to prevent solder from being attracted to traces as opposed to pads. Whereas this is oh, okay. um, this is called something slightly different, and now I'm blanking on it. Now I could be wrong about that, but but these are the terms I'm trying to figure out as well. It, the goal here, as I understand it, is you're you're laying down a thing because you want to essentially like smush a bunch of goo all over the board, but you only want that goo to go into a very few specific places where there's holes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you squirted toothpaste through a block of Swiss cheese. <laughs> you would you would 
it would only go. <laughs> so there's your next project, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Challenge accepted. That flavor combo. I mean, it's a very good visual <laughs> metaphor, but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 like a it's like a ween concept album. Oh yeah, so you flip it over and there there are a bunch of um labels on the circuit board and, and mm. this looks like a professionally made circuit board. It's all green and it's got printing and you know, lots of nice looking pads. Yeah, and precision is our challenge. So I have a sense that this might be some of the most precise electronics mm-hmm. work Taylor has done to date. And z- zoom in on that bad boy. I didn't do a good job uh, circling and making arrows as I usually do. And maybe a battery goes on the top because I see a big plus sign. Oh, mm-hmm. Like this whole uh, thing like a could coin be cell. a coin cell, right? Like a mm-hmm. circuit board that's just barely bigger than a coin cell. Yeah. But just to direct you guys a little bit, can you see the results of the stenciling with the solder the solder paste? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's right. There are oh, little tiny yeah. splotches on each of those resistor or um, diode mm-hmm. pads. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, that you have yeah some Q102s, some capacitors. Looks like some other stuff. And where those touch the board is now has like a little dollop of solder where the it squished through the mask. That's mm-hmm. cool. Oh, we got a video next. Matthew, what do you what what did you make of that? I I don't know what I made of that. I'm still uh-huh. trying to figure it out. <laughs> I'm gonna scrub back through it to see. I, I think I saw a successful resistor down on the board, but yeah, I think I need to watch it again. Yep, I think you're right. Like that was yes. victory music, potentially. I think that's victory music, yeah, that could be. <laughs> and it does seem like it's some microscope image or handheld it's very jiggly so even it might just be like a close-up of a of like a mobile like a smartphone camera but it does look like taylor has successfully mounted Mm -hmm. um service mount components are like the end of your fingernail sized things are these these tiny tiny chips um chips maybe is the wrong word components um so getting them positioned exactly right is sort of like you know, blowing ants around on a plate and seeing if you can get it to stick. So it's yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, or like reassembling a potato chip out of the crumbs in the bottom of the bag. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that could be like a hot plate or something. Maybe I think I think this is a a, um, a solder fume sucker. This is like yes. some sort of a hot plate, and then uh-huh. Uh-huh. so I think I think what's happening is that the board is being baked to yep. melt that solder. Mm-hmm. onto those components and then uh taylor doesn't want to breathe the fumes which is a good idea take take a look at the at the gif that's next aha awesome oh it oh is. yeah there we go the action shot yep mm-hmm. so this is this guy uh his handle is lafris and he's a south uh, south african engineer that made this little device called a reflower with no e um as the second to last letter, so reflow R, and um, so it's it's a purpose built device that's specifically meant for reflowing circuit boards like this. Um, you can do it on the cheap if you just take a skillet and you put a bunch of sand in it, and then you heat it up, and then the sand is supposed to more evenly distribute heat up into the board. Although I think people just do it on a skillet, like they're cooking eggs too, just with limited results. Um, the cool thing about this one, which this guy sells through a website I was previously unfamiliar with called Tindy, T-I-N-D-I-E. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
it has Wi-Fi connectivity, and you can interface with it with an Android device. But if you don't have that, you just press the button on the front a different number of times to go through different programs. So in this case, it's lead-free solder paste. And so I just press the button seven times, and then it ramps up through like a warm-up period, then it plateaus there for a while, then it melts in earnest. Uh, And the thing gets really, really hot. (laughs) So uh, it's great. It's a really cool little device. It took forever to arrive. And um, it looked like it had been wrapped basically in a um, paper bag by the time it got to uh, (laughs) from South Africa to the United States. Uh, But it worked great. I mean, it's it's kind of like a brick shit house. And uh, yeah, so this is my I'd had it sitting in my studio for a little bit. And it was the first time I really sat down to learn how it worked. Um, That's awesome. The design is is also some included pieces that the guy sends along when you buy it. However, he sent a battery holder that did not fit into this design. So if you look at the tutorial online, it shows a different battery uh, form factor. So I had to, after making this really great, precious little circuit board, I just had to put some big, ugly jumper wires on it and I just <laughs> try, try to figure out where positive and negative were. And they're just so poorly labeled that I was just like randomly picking holes. So, so I can get both LEDs to light up solid, but it's supposed to blink back and forth is the, uh, the behavior oh, it's supposed to do. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, so I mean, really, this was just my ex- experiment in trying to figure out how more you know precise um, uh, surface mount component generation works. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool because like it's 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 the it's like the very crafty hand done version of a thing that is like done mm-hmm. that is like a mass 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 product you know like if you're wondering how how like literally millions of cell phones are made in a few months like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's this yep. process on steroids that's cool yeah so that's me taylor that's cool is this your first experiment in in surface mount stuff uh i've been doing some stuff with um former podcast guests um uh, Nick Bontrager, and yeah. we've talked about that here and there. So he's he's mostly been taking care of the surface mount. And you can surface mount, like you can um, solder that stuff by hand. It's just a real pain to do. So up until now, he was the only one that had a little DIY oven, and it was kind of slowing down our collaborative back and forth. Yeah, so sure. I ordered this sure. so that I could, you know, get that workflow going faster. That's and then... Really cool. um, the project that we're working on that will invoke a bunch of surface mount stuff is going to be in New York in, I think, February at the College Art Association. So I'll um, promote that more as it comes closer. Awesome. Pretty soon. Mm-hmm. M- Matthew, you are up. I'm trying to bring up your files, but it's it's dogging out. How about you, Rob? Have you got the five? Yeah, yeah. So far, so good. Okay, hang on. So, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It, it, ever since uh, Ajit Pai uh, crapped the internet out, I, I never know if it's me or or like the global, or the <laughs> mm-hmm. the Bilderbergs or something. Yep. It's yeah, that, that's like the you break it, you bought it problem, right? Like you once once the internet's no longer. Uh even carrier we all get lost in conspiracy theories about why netflix isn't loading yeah i've never been a conspiracy theory guy now here i am um oh wow it's oh let me tell you rob that the last couple times we have had a guest on matthew i don't want to embarrass you here 
But I feel like so much smart shit comes out of people's mouths. I just want to just stop and think about it for a while. But that yeah. doesn't that doesn't make <laughs> good radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why we edit? Okay. So uh, be cool, be cool, Hokinson. Be cool. Okay, I've got a I've got an image. Oh, I'm I'm really digging this. So I love the evidence of reconsideration when we have JPEGs one through five, but also. 1A, 01, 0A, and 0. Yeah, listeners, we often have a zip of images that we're going through, and and they're sequenced, right? Mm -hmm. And and what Taylor is talking about is you'll have like 0.jpg, and then you'll have 0A.jpg, and then 1.jpg. Yeah, which is like the a telltale sign that someone has decided to insert an image into the sequence. Uh, after the fact, which is, yeah. Great, I'm, really I'm great. genuinely curious at this late date in our podcasting fame, how many people needed to be walked through the um, <laughs> alphanumeric discussion about uh, uh, alphabetic um, file order? I guess we'll never know, <laughs> Rep. We'll never yeah, know. Yeah, we'll never know. Yeah, someone will have to tell us. <laughs> we know. So, so right. speaking of which, the first image, mm-hmm. if you're talking uh-huh. about dog whistling to nerds. It's very um, interesting. It would appear to be maybe a photograph of a television or a monitor, which has a YouTube clip up of a guy running uh-huh. uh, in a particularly nerdy way at Fry's uh-huh. the Electronic Superstore, which is like a West Coast thing, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Uh, he's, but everything's kind of blurry and compressy because it's just been paused. And we, we tend to forget how crappy... YouTube streaming stuff can be, particularly if you just see it in a single frame. I mean, like you can barely get any information out of this image. Yeah, this is like a screenshot from YouTube, and it's 11 seconds into a one, like a 58 second clip, mm-hmm. and it has like almost kind of like a Black Friday kind of vibe or something, where like there's a couple of people standing around, and this one person is yes yeah, shuffling their way past the fries um, banner, but we don't know why. It's got a really yeah. nice composition too. I have to it say, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly yeah, with that little hearty. little foot in the lower right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Fries is like what? What's the? What was the? Um, there's some electronics and computers micro center, right? In uh, Chicago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Chicago. Yeah. I think it's the it's only like, place around that sells uh, Arduinos off the shelf, unless you count oh. um, Inventables in Chicago. But they don't really have a storefront. Yeah, that's really handy still. So, man, 0A just further mm-hmm. piques my interest in terms of its lack of information. Yeah, folded folded 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper folded lengthwise is what my guess is on this. I think it's smaller than that, and it's incompletely folded. There was no bone folder at work here, Rep. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm. Image 01, we see the tiniest corner of an of a... 2011 era MacBook. <laughs> and... <laughs> Nerds. Can you, can you yeah. identify the wood species based on that knot? <laughs> yeah. Well, well I'm assuming a... that's Ikea pine. Could, that's could a 13 millimeter uh, MacBook. <laughs> um, T- T- Taylor, Taylor nailed it though. It's a yes. Ikea pine desktop. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I know my Ikea pine for sure. Podcast forensics. So we have the, the paper is not completely folded in half and half, but it's whatever the size is. It's definitely yeah, folded, folded in. lengthwise. The corners meet the corners. Yeah, Rob, your uh, your notion about podcast forensics makes me want to get my uh, like breathy deep voice on where I talk about a 
there was only one not visible, you know, like a little did they know. <laughs> like a true crime, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can't pull it off, but I'd, I'd love to hear you try. Oh, so mm-hmm. the next image, coming together. definite definite paper airplane. Yep. Uh, vibe. All the way across the sky. Uh, but not not the like old, old school, most basic kind, which is eight and a half by 11 folded in half. This is from a square piece. Yes. Right. But we've got this like telltale, like there's been a fold and then an unfolding. So there's creases in strategic places. This is that classic one that turns out wider than it is long and made you feel all metric in Japanese when you made it in grade school. <laughs> Image number two. Oh. Okay. Yep. Yeah, definitely in the realm of origami, but still, still looks like a still looks like a plane. I don't even know what's happening now in image three. We're back to the paper airplane, I think. We're getting a nice little sort of yeah pinching shot. Uh-huh. Um, yep. There's a there's a lot of work put into the casualness of some of these compositions that I have to note. Mm-hmm. They, I I think the casualness is completely natural myself, but well, <laughs> no, hang on. It's got this Kurosawa vibe where. The background, <laughs> middle ground, and foreground are completely activated. Um, Rob, do you want to take any guesses before we get the payoff as to how this is going to relate to the flies, uh, fries video? Oh, that's I'm a pickle. Go look back at the fries video. Oh, oh, oh! Oh my gosh! Go relook at the fries video. Come on now. Is there something there? I didn't think it was necessary. Yeah, there's something there. Oh, well, there's a paper. Oh, how did I? Yeah, wow. (laughs) Now when you look back with that context, it's so obvious. It's like a magic trick just happened. Yeah, for sure. So so the paper airplane was overlapping the corner of a big vinyl sign with a white background. And so before, we had no interest in the corner, but now it's completely apparent that there's that white-on-white airplane that somebody is, is chasing in flight i thought it was like lens flare or something yeah on the corner but it's actually a paper so maybe did fries maybe have a paper airplane challenge it's a good question could this be the world's attended by at least three people yeah yes i'm going to i'm going to five okay he's number five Uh aha i am very suspicious about the design on the left <laughs> Maybe this is an attempt to it, recreate. It's like an Abex paper airplane. Or perhaps it just got its nose busted at some point. We have three different models of airplanes similar in shape, but also different. Indeed. Different geometries, slightly different angles, mm-hmm. but the same spirit of airplane. Yeah. Uh side by side. Yeah, I, I tried to take some. I guess that's the closest. I tried to take some flying shots, but um, they, I didn't catch it uh-huh. while throwing and holding my cell phone camera. And then the event, they eventually it all ended up in my neighbor's yard. So, um, hopefully, they're okay but, with that. But what's the story with <laughs> what's the story with fries? Then were you actually so there? So the fries is actually that is the world record-setting paper airplane yes. throw oh. that fries is sponsored. So John Collins designed job, this Rob. airplane. And, uh, yeah, this video came out five, six years ago. And, um, you know, I took a look at it and I was like, I know how to make that airplane. But I was sure there had to be something else to it. And um, when you were talking about precision, I was thinking about the first precision activity I learned to do, which was making paper airplanes, which I've been doing since I was really little. And um, 
So this is basically the the, the world record setting paper airplane, which uh, I think fairly recently John Collins, who created it, released the folding plans for um, outside of one of his books, which I never bought. Um, and I've been meaning to learn how to fold it because I know these two alternate ways to fold almost the same airplane. And um, I'd been collecting them for years. So the one on the left is the first version of this airplane that I'd learned to fold in, I believe, second grade from my gym teacher who knew how to fold that airplane. And then the middle one is the second way I learned how to fold it in like fifth grade or something. My, My cousin Andrew taught me how to do that. And then on the on the right is the John Collins um, world record holder version wow. of the airplane, and uh, which is now like the third way I know to fold kind of the same same airplane. Um, and the the precision thing that got me thinking about it was originally the difference between the first way I learned to fold it and the second way. And uh, so the first plane. You can see the it's in photo two, the the basic fold up, which yeah. is kind of this complex origami thing, and it, it looks really cool while you're folding it. I mean, I, I remember learning how to do that and just loving how much it impressed other kids to fold this complicated <laughs> paper airplane. Yeah, because uh, they'd be like, "Wow, that's the most complicated paper airplane." Um, and then. My cousin Andrew, you know, he shows me this like other way to fold where you like rip the corner off to lock it in place. It's much easier. And that plane always flies better. And I think the difference is is that the buildup of those folds lowers the precision of your fold, you know, because you're you're folding folded paper and it slips inside that fold. And I hadn't ever like built two of these paper airplanes next to each other, at least not as an adult really thinking about it. And um, so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd make these three and see how they flew next to each other. Um, and and uh, yeah, marvel at the precision of paper airplanes and then how my precision translated into flight. Of the, th- of the three, which one did the best? You know, the, the, the John Collins world record holder, it flew the straightest. Okay. So I would oh. say it was the most precise um it was kind of like a. it wasn't an exciting paper airplane to fly though i don't don't think i enjoyed it the most i enjoyed the one in the middle the most um i couldn't quite get it to fly straight but you know it glides very well it kind of floats and is a really fun airplane and then the one on the left was was that right um Uh but uh much faster flyer kind of like a dart you know you know i was gonna i was just about to post a link for airplane launchers you can build with lego but then I realized I was on a horrible website called uh, frugalfunforboys.com, <laughs> which I feel like in Ooh. good in good conscience I cannot link to. No. <laughs> uh, but there's have you guys seen, there's this video, I'm posting it now, uh, where not only does the thing launch the paper airplane, but it actually folds the entire thing from a completely wow. um, uh, oh. generic, you know, uh, A whatever or 8.5 by 11. Y- y'all know Chris Burden, the artist? Sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, his launching of paper airplanes with a joint inside? Oh, I didn't know he did that. Oh, wait. Which one were you going to say? Oh, he, he, this was later in his, you know, this was after he became fancy. Mm-hmm. He, 
or less tolerant of being shot. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that too. Yeah. He had this super elaborate machine built mm-hmm. that went from like raw material to paper airplane at the end. Really? Yeah, and wow. and it would launch them and the and it and the exhibition it was a sort of site specific machine because it would launch them and the paper airplanes would like fly upward in this circling arc in this like domed you know this like european domed like viennese something something you know like uh like one of these like old buildings that you know with magnificent architecture mm-hmm. and then they would just fall on the ground i think it would make one like every hour or something but they have like vats of glue vats of like preloaded balsa wood sort of like a clip of balsa wood you know that's loaded and and paper and stuff it's pretty it's a pretty great project i don't you know it's probably sitting in some contemporary art center's warehouse or something but i'm seeing it i'm seeing references to it but having trouble finding an image but it's i think referred to as the airplane factory it's the first piece I knew that he did of his. And so uh-huh. I was really freaked out when I learned about all the other stuff he did. Right. Yeah. He, um, I think way back in the sixties or seventies, I can try to find the, uh, I think I threw a link up there for you guys. Yeah. 78. He made some little airplanes and then stuck a joint inside and then was sending pot back across the border to Mexico. Oh man. But it's, yeah, with his stuff, it's funny. I mean, you know, Earlier on, it was sort of like kind of easy solutions to something that would get people a titter, whether it was being shot or physically injuring yourself or whatever. But then the work could be, you know, conceptualized and performed in the space of 16 minutes. Uh, whereas the, the stuff before he died was just so complicated, but wasn't going to hurt anybody. I think he, he even built like a full reproduction of one of alberto santos demont's blimps right that was remote control oh Oh, i don't know i think that i think i i think that's the correct aviation pioneer yeah he did ode to santos demont was one of his last works whoa i mean just so he like and he he went and tried to do historical research and like get every component down uh to like be exactly the right shape and um i mean it's just uh, yeah, quite quite a feat of historical reproduction or pseudo historical reproduction because uh-huh, it's clearly uh-huh. modern materials. Yeah, that's cool. Rob, we we must watch your video. Let's do it. So let me get this Vimeo loaded. I'll probably be the weak link again, and then Matthew, should we hit play on? On the count of three. All right. One, two, three. Boiling water. Yeah. Boiling water in one of those fancy pour-over um, machines. I doubt it even gets to boiling, right? It's just to get it to like precisely the right temperature. Matthew, I, I don't want to influence you, but if somebody in the future would make a challenge, which is Rob doesn't do anything coffee-related for two weeks, I'd be curious to see what happened. <laughs> New temperature's climbing. Yep. Are we a little fast mo here? Mm-hmm. I think so. So it cut off at 173 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know if we'll ever know the right coffee temperature. Well, maybe it's that. I do, I do know Rob to be a um, a very. Uh, I'm looking for a non 
critical word here. <laughs> Uptight is the thing that comes to mind, but he's very specific about his the way his coffee functions, such as wetting his filter. Yeah, so we're watching a, a, a Chemex, uh, right, coffee pot, and the filter just got wetted, exactly. And Is he going to weigh the coffee grounds? Let's see if this happens. Yeah, he is. I think the water, too. Now, this dude, this dude lives it. This is oh yeah, there's the scale. <laughs> this Water's is not invented for the sake of this particular challenge. <laughs> Teared out the weight of the cup. Yep. Um, beans. We have beans. I find it interesting that we're measuring the beans and not the grounds. So Thirty-four grams of beans. Oh, thirty-three mm-hmm. and a half. Oh, nope, Readjusting. <laughs> oh man. Thirty. Thirty-two exactly on the nose. Yeah. All right. So the beans have been established. So, but then is is he going to wind up grinding these beans? Like, yeah, how will he grinder. know that the grounds have all made it out of the system? Is what I want to know. Well, he's using a burr grinder to make sure the particles are all the same size. That's. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's checking the particle size. Oh, okay. Well, it, I mean, it looks like this thing is pretty efficient. So all of those beans are conducted. Okay, we're back to the temperature. So why do you think we have a secondary heat? <laughs> or or it was for narrative intrigue. Like, we understood that the water started boiling and all those other tasks happened and precisely the time it took for the water to boil. You nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> Rob, there were still some husks left in that thing. I, just, I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know how I feel about that part. I, I do really like how the shot is framed so that we get... Yeah. Here it comes, pouring it over. And, and you can tell that there's no autofocus going on, right? Like, Rob carefully compi- comp- composited this shot. It's got a fancy uh, application of the water. But what I don't understand is why would the weight change while we were watching that step? Or was it that more water was added when we were out of frame? I th- Yeah, I think there's more water when we're out of frame. Okay. So Rob, Rob just made 600.5 grams of coffee. Very precise. He's using his effective use of occasional fast mo to get us through the... Uh, um, more straightforward parts of the narrative. And then he was like carefully squeezing out the water and then he just like, just got rid of it while it was still dripping. I, uh. That was hard for me. <laughs> but okay, there's some dilution going on. Or no, no, it's a preheating. Preheating of yep. the uh, thermos. Yep. Okay. All right, so, so preheating a thermos. But he's only put in maybe two-thirds of the coffee, right, before he adds the milk? Yeah, it seems to be mostly milk. But uh, it was a measured <laughs> quantity of milk. I, I didn't catch the measurement. But. Oh snap, Rob! That sounded that sounded like pr- highly critical. <laughs> That's a lot of work for mostly milk, dude. <laughs> I've had uh, that critique before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Rob. What's your um? What percentage of your coffee is your milk? So that was six tablespoons of half and half. It's not that not that bad for two cups. I mean, it also makes me wonder why. So you're you are comfortable with a volumetric measurement for your milk, but you must have a weight measurement for your coffee and water. That's right. Well, because there's nothing to there's nothing to mix. Yeah. So it's just knowing I'm getting this the right amount of half and half that I like, uh-huh. as opposed to need like because when you you want to weigh both the the water weight and the coffee weight because you're combining the two right so uh where with milk you're just sort of adding it after the fact so the the mm. the, the, the crucial work the has been done yeah yes right 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 
Matthew, what do you make of this little piece we've watched? It's very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially good lighting, good focus work. Um, I was pretty astounded at the precision of s- tr- aiming for, I assume, 600 grams worth of coffee mm-hmm. and nailing it. You know, it's putting together hot water and ground coffee from a bean and, and ending up within half a gram of a, a finished product. It's, it's a lot of precision. I think I think the main thing I'm interested in asking Rob about, I would imagine that you can't tell a taste difference if it was slightly off, so it's more about the ritual. But what do you think about that? Or can you indeed? If you I mean have you have you ever experimented with the um the fine grained limitations of your palate? Like if you made five hundred and ninety grams, could you tell the difference? I think someone else would have to make it. Oh yeah. And then I would have to see. But I have had times where the batteries in my scale died at mid, mid-prepare. <laughs> and I was like adrift at sea. I just yeah. didn't know what to do. <laughs> oh, that's so great. So, so what if, well, because I feel like we could set this up pretty easily where you could come up with a couple of different variations on getting the recipe wrong. And then you could just have a friend, or I mean, you could even just mix them up. Like you label them on the back and then keep turning them around until you don't know what's what. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be I'd be really curious to find out because you've spent so much time nailing this down so specifically what you can actually tell the difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so so I do my ratio is eighteen point seven five to one. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. Go ahead. And that's actually kind of by chance in a way. It's like the math actually works out right. So it's three hundred grams of water and thirty two grams of of I'm sorry, it's six hundred grams of water and thirty two grams of coffee. Or if you cut that in half, right? It's it's like easy math, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like, or 300 grams of water and 16 grams if you only want to make one cup, which I have in the afternoon. Um, or then you can do 12 grams of coffee and 300 grams of, and um, 200 grams of water. Like the math actually works out pretty nicely. So you can always adjust it up and down, mm-hmm. even though it's 18.75 to 1, which seems super wonk. Um, I did look at in- intelligence. It does 15 to 1. So it's a stronger. Uh, less water per gram of coffee yeah it's so it's the most precise thing i do and i realize i do it every day and i was like okay i, I kind of have to do this one yeah um it's also a little bit of a selfish video because tons of people ask me like mm. hey you're like a coffee person how do you do it and so now i have a video i can send to someone and mm-hmm. say this is how i do it nice excellent yeah, i found pour overs to be an interesting phenomenon i, I visited a co-working space uh, a few years ago, I had a business meeting there, and um, you know they were like, "Oh yeah, you know, come." It was it was early in the morning for me. It was like you know eight thirty East Coast uh-huh. time, but I'd just flown in from the West Coast, so I wasn't really feeling Oof. like it was eight thirty. And yeah. um, they, whomever designed this co-working space, had decided that that they were only going to do pour-over coffee in the kitchen. So suddenly there are like thirty people trying to all run yep. around the kitchen, make pour over. And I'm like still on West coast time, like needing a cup of coffee. <laughs> like I just can't do this. Like what's even going on. And, um, yeah, I, I, at the moment I, I, I started to get upset about the concept of like de automation, like mm-hmm. coffee making from my pedestrian palette, like coffee making is like a perfectly well automated process. You know, you could just put coffee in the machine. It'll 
make coffee for you. And now yep. we're in the midst of this, this kind of, um, uh, obsessive, like de-automation of coffee. I wonder how far that's going to go in other, other realms of life. Cause it's normally the same crowd, right? Like the, the precision yep. coffee crowd is also like the robotics crowd. And somehow like they don't have the coffee robot that Mr. Coffee that already exists, you know? Totally. Yeah. There, there's a couple of automated machines that are, are really good and they pour in the spirit of the pour over. And it's really only one hack that you have to do, which is the classic coffee machine is a steady stream of water only placed in the center of your grinds, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think of a Mr. Coffee coffee machine, it's like, there's just like a, it just pees, right? A stream of hot water down the middle of the, of the thing. When what you really want is a shower head, right? Like you want it to evenly distribute the water across the whole surface. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you really just, have a shower head style coffee maker that goes a super long way to making it better. Um, the other thing is, is, and this is like controversial because it freaks people out is what you really want is a thermal carafe instead of a heated bottom, mm-hmm. because that's the thing that really wrecks the flavor is right. it, you know, coffee just sits there and gets hot. Oh, so really? it, now, now I, I, that all sounds great and I don't mean to impugn your coffee process. I'm sure, I'm sure your coffee is much better than my coffee, but, but I want to, I want to understand the thought process where like, you know, you're, you're, you're a guy who builds technological products mm-hmm. and, yep. and, and there are other folks out there like you who also make, make pour overs. How is it that, that people like looked at the, the robot, right? The Mr. Coffee yes. and went, okay. There are a couple fixes I could do to this, but instead, I'm just going to do it all by hand, right? Because it's it's almost yep. like invariably yep. the whole crew has decided. Well, for this one task, we're not going to use the robot. That's a good question. Yeah, the pourover works well for me because I don't. I I like make coffee and leave for work. Like I don't right. make a pot, you know. Um, so it's like just the right amount. This is also reminding me of, I believe there was a documentary called Fresh Pots about Dave Grohl. Are you guys familiar with this? Oh. No. So he had such an obsession with having new coffee brewed in the studio over and over again that he actually had to see a doctor about his, uh, <laughs> oh my God. his caffeine take. Wow. So yeah, so Precision, that was, I will admit that I had two other projects that fell apart. Uh <laughs> Uh, but this one was also on my list, so I don't feel like I cheated. I, I, I will say what one of them was. One of them was is I tried to reclaim my failed camera experiment, but in a more precise way. Yeah. <laughs> because I face-planted on the last episode, yeah. and I nearly face-planted on this episode. Fortunately, I had a mind, the mind map saved me. I didn't document it here, but I was like, the first thing I typed to my mind map was making coffee, and then I, I was like, well, I guess I just got to go back to my first instinct, so... Yeah, I think I think actually the last time I saw Rob in person, the last time I was down in Los Angeles, which was 2015. Yeah. Or so? Yep. Yeah, um that was probably the only time in my adult life I was not drinking coffee. I just I just was in the midst of this like 9-month period where I was like I'm going to quit drinking coffee. Wow. Yeah. 9 months is a long time. Yeah, and then I I started drinking coffee again. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever come back down, I'll uh I'll make you I'll make you some nice first time's free you can find photos of our finished projects over at projects.opposablepodcast.com we also have links to many 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 show notes and other cool stuff uh 
at our Instagram account, which is opposable underscore podcast, and also in our show notes. Uh, if you'd like an opposable thumb sticker, just share a podcast episode on social media or rate us on iTunes or something like that, and we will send you a sticker. So just hit us up on Instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email address, which is opposablepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, let us know, and we'll send you a sticker. And shout out to uh, Wolf Mask, who designed our logo. Patreon. We have two new Patreon supporters this episode, which is super rad. David Bellhorn and Adam Mayer are new Patreon supporters. And thank you, huge thanks, thanks, thanks to David and Adam. And also thanks to Blondie Hacks, uh, Nick Kantar, and Walter Katundu, who mm-hmm. are longtime awesome supporters. So for thanks sure. to all of y'all. For that, and if you'd like to join them in the League of Patreon Supporter Badasses, please go to patreon.com slash thumbs to sponsor us. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter or religion or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Matthew. We have reached the section of the podcast where we find out about things that you're up to and also things that you like. So do you have anything to share for us? Sure. Um, Well, I brought up Futel, which I volunteered with. Um, I've also been listening to Force Damage, which is my uh, friend Abe Engel's band. He does uh, DIY electronics and makes um, like learn-to-build synthesizer kits. Oh, uh, I'm really enjoying his music, though. and not just saying that as a friend. That's a great um, band name too. And then, uh, yeah, I picked out two two more podcasts. I've been sewing um, a lot over the last two months, uh, working on AirPup, working on my Kite Balloon. And that means a lot of podcast listening. And uh, two I've been really obsessed with are uh, Hakai Magazine, which is like a nonprofit out of British Columbia. They cover coastal ecosystems and social issues related to them. Um Things like living with brown bears, um, wow. you know, issues around like fish, fisheries management and stuff. But they're, they're extremely interesting. Some of the best popular science content I've seen. And they have a podcast of their articles. And then um, I'm listening to uh, Scene on Radio, S-C-E-N-E on Radio, which is um, a uh, John Bewin and... Uh, his uh, he, he has a different co-host each season. This season is is, oh, cool. is on men, and he's doing an entire season on patriarchy and men. Whoa! Uh, and last season was on on white supremacy, called "Seeing White" and like constructions of whiteness on America, and uh, it's pretty amazing. That sounds yeah. great. That sounds mm-hmm. really cool. Cool. I have only one thing, and this is an an article. Maybe it's a blog post. I'm not sure what you want to call it. It's, it's a thing. It's a written thing on the internet with photos. <laughs> um, and it's the title is called Behind the Scenes at London Underground's Bank Tube Station Upgrade. And I can't remember now where I heard about this article, so apologies to the person who sent it to me. Um, but it's it's a part of this website called Ian Visits, which is a sort of fan site about the London Underground, like the tube stations and mm-hmm. stuff. And this article is such a cool like dissection of the thinking and problem solving and discoveries and pain points of making a, a underground tube station uh, in London, which is, is super cool and really interesting. And it's very infrastructure. And I thought um, 
knowing Matt's Matthew's work a little bit, I thought he would appreciate that. Yeah, I just finished. Um, I just finished Bundyville at Rob's suggestion. Oh, was that yeah. just seven episodes? That was the last one, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really dug that, and um, I mean, talk about a really great, creepy context-setting musical stab that's only like one measure long that just repeats over and over again. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so so I, I'll definitely take you guys up on these new suggestions. Uh, in terms of things I'm into, I mentioned the Reflower, which is uh, R-E-F-L-O-W-R, uh, which is by this guy Lafris, and so I, I recommend that. It's been that that tool is looking like it's going to be really useful. And then I just joined up at Pumping Station One, which is apparently oh, the cool. the world's second oldest hackerspace, or at least the United States' second wow. oldest hackerspace. And um, I'm going to be working on. I can't remember if I talked about this already, but I'm working on a um, a special topics course through the fashion department of all places at my school uh, on the topic of blue collar fashion. So the idea is that um, I'll do some welding workshops and stuff off campus, and then students will make like a dining table or something and then have to produce a jumpsuit that um, relates to the research they've done, the sort of primary research of building a woodworking project. Wow. And, and then they'll have to make their own clothing that, you know, helps them work in the shop. So I'm pretty pretty excited about that. That's great. Yeah. Matt, you, I assume, have a website for AirPup or a page that people can go to for that? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I have been posting on AirPup on my uh, blog, headfullofair.com. Um, you can find my kite and balloon projects there. Um, and uh, links to, I, I post kites and uh, other projects on GitHub. has been where my recent hardware repository. So yeah, all that's linked from headfullofair.com. And then, of course, AirPup, my uh, new kite balloon. If you're looking for a quiet way to fly um, that doesn't make the droning sound of a drone uh, to capture <laughs> aerial video or uh, want to do remote communications or anything, uh, please check out AirPup. Uh, it's running on crowdsupply.com uh, right now as a um, crowdfunding campaign. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to share it. And uh, if you're in the Pacific Northwest and, and want to fly with me, get in touch. You're in Portland, is that right? Mm-hmm. AirPup is so cool. You, Anyone listening, please go look at photos of this thing. It's totally amazing. And it's like one of those things, as soon as you look at it, you're like, that thing is super simple and must have taken so much work to get to that design. <laughs> like, it's really amazing. And there's, am I right in thinking that in one of the photos, you're it's being pulled behind on a bike? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't own a car. That's so I mean, cool. that's that, that's one of my big things. I, I like making uh-huh. balloons, and balloons get big, but this is like the biggest balloon I can fit in my bike trailer and on my bike. And yeah, I, I do a lot of towing. I've, uh, I made the smaller one and did a, did a bike tow to the park. And uh, with the larger one, I've been been doing a lot of my tests by bike. And one day, I want one day I want to make this thing fly off of uh, biogas. I'm going to try doing a methane-filled balloon, which would be really cool from like a uh, remote application standpoint. You know, it's just like all you need is a bunch of you know agricultural waste or something. You can make the balloon fly. Um, But it is like eight times more energy for the lift than hydrogen. Mm. So Wow. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. There's just wow. too many cool things to research just for the fact of it, you know? Uh-huh. I just feel uh-huh. like if, if I could decide to live forever, then I would just do one of every single thing I could find at the library. I mean, how nerdy is that? Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Matthew, do you, um, 
what do you think? What, where are we heading uh, next time? What should be the challenge for for next time? Yes. Flat things. I think flat things should be the challenge <laughs> for next time because nice. it came up. It came up from uh, Quinn's um mm, episode right, right. Uh-huh. you're talking for about sure. machining uh-huh. flat surfaces and the importance of flat surfaces so i think mm-hmm. i think you should do a challenge on on making things flat excellent i get behind wow that. <laughs> cool okay making things flat mm-hmm. we have our challenge taylor i'm into it yeah thank you so much for coming on oh, it was for sure super enlightening and fun and challenging and great yeah thanks for having me this was so much fun Helium is is sort of in short supply, right? If I'm not mistaken, because of the it's it needed is. in CT scans or whatever it is. It is in somewhat somewhat short supply. Although the big story about the short supply um, was kind of like a hyperbolic press piece from mm-hmm. from 2012 2013. Um, and the real story there is kind of interesting. It's the the United States decided like in the 1920s that helium would be a strategic resource and the United mm-hmm. States would monopolize uh-huh. it and uh-huh. prevent American enemies from getting it. So that's why like the Hindenburg, which was designed for helium, was full of hydrogen because uh. the U.S. wouldn't sell Germany helium. Um, but the Republican Congress in 1994 decided that the Cold War was over and so the U.S. should liquidate its strategic helium reserve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being business-minded, they decided to do that below the market rate of, like, producing (laughs) helium. And so that started in, like, 1994 or 5 and took until 2011 or 2012 to exhaust the U.S.'s um, stores of helium, all being sold below the market rate of, like, collecting helium. So in 2011-2012, when that supply ran out the whole world kind of freaked out because nobody had it was uneconomical for anyone to capture helium um and since more refining capacity has come online and the price is higher than it used to be but but for the most part there isn't really a a a shortage right now there have been some issues because some of it's coming from saudi arabia and we'll see um see how that goes oh man that's oh, a whole other podcast <laughs> not, not to right get there. into another yeah <laughs> a whole other podcast oh man yep. um yep. and then recently a a well was actually discovered in tanzania of a high concentration of helium and that's coming online wow there's a helium um, well that's i just never yeah. thought of that yeah it, it'll be the world's first exclusively helium capture operation well so soon there will be like a new hopefully cheap source of helium available hmm. Well, 